three and a half years ago, I was at Wake Med Hospital when the news came that Dan Brisson had died in surgery. Most of the family was present there in the hotel room at, that they have at Wake Med. Uh, Becky was there, of course, and the Lanes and their children and spouses and the grandchildren. It was a surreal scene. There was stunned silence on the part of some adults, quiet weeping on the part of other adults and jumping on the beds by the children. I mean, there were efforts that were made to corral the children, but they're children. And so they were going to do it. It it was one of those seminal moments where the cycle of life is played out in front of your eyes. We've seen that same cycle in our own family this past year. On Tuesday, uh, we will remember the day on which one year ago Linda graduated to heaven. At the same time, we are marking the halfway point of Autumn's pregnancy with her first child, my daughter's pregnancy. And so we see that same cycle of life in our own family. Preparation for real life ended for Linda, March 3rd of 2008. She is experiencing life right now at a level that we can only imagine. We, we really can't imagine. But is it fair to say that only those who have gone on to be with the Lord are experiencing real life? Can we not say that there is real life to be had in this experience? As painful as these last few years have been for me, I would have to say that yes, real life can be experienced here. In fact, our text today would argue against a a pessimistic view of life on earth. But then, as the pendulum swings the other way, is it fair to say, to title the message, The Beauty of Life? I mean, do we really want to go that far and talk about life being beautiful? Is it beautiful for Rosa Maria Matthews, who said goodbye to her mother this week? Or to Josh Tate, who's Face and hands were rather seriously burned yesterday as he was preparing the meal for the Grace Outdoors banquet last night or for the Moody's who were living with the horror of cancer in a two-year-old baby or Elise Finnerty who continues to deal with the tumor benign but still very discouraging and somewhat debilitating at times. And for Woody Woodruff who... Is halfway through chemo treatment or those who are still looking for jobs? Can we talk about the beauty of life? Well, let's take some time and answer those questions. Our text today is John 10, 1 through 18. Really just going to look at verse 10, but there's so much about Jesus being our shepherd. If you know anything about Linda, if you had any contact with her in that last year, you know that It meant so much to her that Jesus was her shepherd. And this is the passage that talks about that uh, more fully than any other. So if you would, please stand as we read John 10, 1 through 18 together. Jesus is speaking and he says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know His voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from Him. For they do not know the voice of of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what He was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from Father. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we are sheep. Helpless, almost hopeless at times in this world. We think we know so much and yet we are so dependent upon the shepherd. Thank you for leaving us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit that guides us and for the shepherd who leads us. And for you, Father, who watch over us with deep compassion care. Thank you for protecting our hearts and we ask that you would open them this morning so that we would receive all the grace that you have for us on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Scripture tells us that we are. We're created in the image of God. Does that mean that God looked like us before we were created. And so he said, you know, I think I'll make people and I'm going to have them look like me. There's indication as we've seen these last few weeks that, that the form that God the Father has, and certainly this would likely be true before we were created, but that form is, is somewhat human, but not exactly. You really can't get a handle on what God the Father looks like. We know that Jesus looked like us when he came here. I mean, he was 100% God, 100% human. Nobody said, you really look strange. They might have said, 
we don't like the way you look. We certainly don't like the way you talk, but he looked just like us. He was one of us. Most theologians believe that Jesus appeared in human form in the Old Testament, though some say, no, I don't think so. I don't think God ever really came in human form in the Old Testament. He never was human before Jesus. Again, most theologians would say, yes, he did. You know, the vague form of God the Father that we see in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, first part of Revelation 5, really may have been more for our point of reference than an indication of what God really looked like. Same may be true of Christophanes, that Jesus was not in human form except when he came to earth before he came to Bethlehem. In John 24, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and if you want to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we're going to start defining what it means to be made in the image of God by saying that we are spiritual beings. God is spiritual, and so are we. We recognize, do we not? We all recognize we're more than flesh and bones. Good grief, look at all the personalities we have. Look at the ways we, we, we think way more than just what our bodies do. Interestingly enough, Linda's body, the, night, the first night that it fully betrayed her, she didn't realize what was happening when we were walking into Panera Bread. I said, why are you dragging your foot? She said, I, I didn't know I was didn't know I was. We're we're more than that. If our physical condition defines who we are, then the last year of Linda's life was meaningless. But it wasn't meaningless because we are spiritual beings. And we are relational. We relate to our Creator, in fact, spiritually. To be made in the image of God means that we are spiritual beings as He is and that we have the ability to have meaningful relationships both with our Creator and with other creatures, other human beings. One of the reasons that we can meaningfully relate to God and to one another is our ability to reason, to think, to use our minds. In Isaiah 1.18, the Lord said to a wandering nation of Israel, Come, let us reason together. Of course, the ability to think rationally has been used by creatures to reason their creator right out of existence. A lot of people say, you know, they use this incredible ability that God's given them and say, ah, so, you know, it just, it just happened. And we've got explanations for how it happened, too. That was a risk God was willing to take if you can accept such language. I think that all of us are grateful that He made us with the ability to think and discern and draw conclusions. We're grateful that we're not robots. It's this ability to reason that many people point to as the primary component in the image of God. We're made in the image of God and we see that most... Clearly, because we can think rationally. Animals can't do that. They're instinctive. Some, we talk about some being smart, you know, so-and-so has got a really smart dog and should take that dog on tonight's show, you know. It can bark the star-spangled banner or whatever. But it's clear that our ability to think rationally separates us from all other 
creatures that we see in this world. I've heard it said, though, and, and it resonates with me, that the image of God is most clearly seen in the imagination. Because when we are creating, we are most like God. That's true, is it not? And it's why that secular art, secular literature, secular music is not intrinsically wrong. It's not just wrong in and of itself. And you, you know a lot of Christians. In fact, you may be one of them that says, you can't listen to that stuff. You can't watch that stuff. Look, most creatures are doing what they were created to do. And some of them that don't know the Lord do it at a very high level because they're made in the image of God. The problem is, whenever sin gets in the middle of stuff, it takes something that was intended to be beautiful and it can very quickly become ugly. Even if there is nothing specifically sinful in the secular entertainment and education and activities that we enjoy, to think that we're going to find fulfillment in this life or true life here, to think that way is to be deluded and to be headed for a major disappointment. And when a Christian, a Christ follower says, I can find real meaning in this life, it's to be intentionally deluded. When we utilize our imagination, we do not create ex nihilo or out of nothing. Any creations that we attempt, including our efforts at engineering life itself are fashioned out of created substances of some sort. God just spoke and it happened. We don't do that. We take a little from here and a little from there. And we create in that way. But just consider how great is the imagination of men and women who were made in the image of God. I mean, think of our discoveries and inventions just in this last century alone. Incredible! But, as we've already acknowledged, sin's there. And our problem is that we're, we seem to be building another Tower of Babel in which we think nothing will be impossible to us. We have forgotten that we are creatures working with the creation not of our own making. We are not creators determining our own destinies. The fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned, marred a beautiful creation. Can you imagine what this place must have been like before sin? Can our minds conjure even the tiniest image of the beauty of an unspoiled world and only pure thoughts and perfect relationships and not even a hint of sorrow or pain or death. Didn't even know what disappointment was. It's the way it's going to be one day, but it was already that way. Already that way. Can you imagine? No, because we're so... Wrapped up in the rest of the story. We know that, unfortunately. Sin entered this perfect world with perfect people in perfect circumstances and scarred the land and its inhabitants. And since that time, groaning has been 
the way of life. Not only do we suffer the consequences of sin, but Satan does all that he can to ensure that this life will be as miserable as possible for us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He Total destruction is his goal for you. You know, uh, in these economic tough times, service has increased considerably at almost all businesses. Man, you get good service these days because they really want your business. And everybody recognizes, if I don't provide service, I'm going to lose my job because there's somebody who will provide good service. Well, Satan's got a plan for you, but it ain't good service. It's the exact opposite. His plan for misery often, though, includes the illusion of success and happiness in order that we might become proud, arrogant, and totally unprepared for the inevitable reverses difficulties of life and for the natural conclusion of the universal principle of sowing and reaping. It's always going to be the case. We're going to sow and then we're going to reap accordingly. After the fall, God brought some order to the world by giving laws to mankind. Laws that were initially written only on the hearts of men and women, but eventually were given to His chosen people, the nation of Israel, in in written form. And the law provided a measure of structure and civility in the land, as it does today. Couldn't live without law. But the primary function of the law turned out to be showing men and women their inability to keep the law that God gave to them. Our failure to meet God's standards ultimately increases the intensity of the pain and deepens the sorrow on our part. We have any desire for righteousness, any desire for things to be as they should be. Death will always prevail regardless of how closely one is able to live to God's standards unless the standard is perfectly kept and that ain't happening. But the law was pointing to something, or rather, to someone. The law was pointing to Jesus. John 1 tells us that the world was full of darkness and death, and then onto that scene burst the Son of God, bringing light and life. Even in the midst of the chaos that is around us as a result of sin. And to some degree, Jesus not only redeemed our souls, He redeemed this world. It is an incomplete redemption right now. That perfect world that was is going to be, again, that will be complete redemption. And He will rule over this world and the entire universe. That's when full redemption. But there is a measure of redemption now. And so, darkness and light, death and life, all coexist in this temporary state. Theologians speak of common grace that is given to all mankind and special grace that is given to the elect, to those who trust Jesus as their Savior. It's true that all men and women benefit from God's common grace. But for those 
who follow Jesus, life and light are theirs, even when they suffer because of the curse that is on this world. When life's pain and indignities close in, and there is a great deal of indignity in death and the process of dying. But when they close in, those who know Jesus can rest in his life. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life, that they may have life, and have it abundantly. That pretty much sums up what we've been saying, doesn't it? What we've been talking about. Actually, that's the truth, and we've been talking about how it plays out. Much of this life is less than wonderful. And for Americans, bad news is particularly painful because we think we've conquered all of the problems that life can throw at us in this advanced age. But we are still susceptible to the natural laws of life in a fallen world, no matter how good it seems to be. So Chad and Sarah Moody's pain is even more difficult because of the juxtaposition of those all around them who are living normal lives where vaccinations and this ingenious system, no matter... you, I hear people... Heard of Dr. Thursday, cursing insurance companies. What an ingenious, what a wonderful system. Insurance. That provide the best medical care possible. This is our life. That's everybody else's life. It seems to be so great. The pain is even greater. It's not that these people live an idyllic life, it's, it's, an, it's an illusion, but it sure seems that way. And Satan appears to have won. And he's happy about that. He has no good intent for us. But thank God he doesn't have the final say in the life of a Christ follower. His intention is destruction. Jesus has nothing but good intentions for us. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I've woken up every day this past year and said... This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Singing that little song, you know, dancing around. No. I've been crying a lot more than I've been rejoicing this year. Especially in the first six months. It's been painful to lose the love of my life. But fortunately, Linda wasn't the only love of my life. Jesus was, and He is. My love is imperfect. And it's been revealed to me over and over in the way that I have dealt with this pain and not dealt with it. In Him, all things will be made right one day. But you know what? We don't just have to think about the future. He has promised abundant life For now, he didn't say, I've come to give you eternal life, and then when you die, you'll really get to experience life. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The NIV says, abundantly, many of the others say. How is that possible? By recognizing him as my shepherd, just like Linda did. 
by believing that he only intends good for me and the pain of this cursed world and life as a result of sin is temporary. And it's his love and his life that he promises is every bit available for me, as available for me as sorrow if I believe. Jesus is the Redeemer and life is beautiful no matter how it appears right now. It's pretty easy to understand that to believe that life is beautiful is an act of faith. Grief is a part of life and it comes to visit when we lose something or someone that we love and it sets up, takes up residence for a while. The promise of abundant life that Jesus gives to us would seem to indicate fullness and consistency and that's one of our problems. We think of abundant life as being, well, we think of it in terms of 21st century Americans. Everything goes right, never have to worry, all the problems get worked out. I mean, challenges, we all love challenges, but problems, that's a different story. Pain, don't want to have to deal with that. If there is something, it can be fixed. But that's not the abundant life that he promises. In fact, if we base our ideas of abundant life, abundant living on 21st century American ideals, we'll ultimately be crushed. And the promise of life will seem like a cruel joke. If we trust the Savior, though, in the face of life's pain, we find meaning in Him. We'll discover that abundant life is not an apparent success or in ease of circumstances, or in the absence of pain and suffering. The absence of troubles. It's where he said it was all along. It's in him. It's in Jesus. It's in the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, we can only stand in awe as we think of what you've done for us. You've given us life, and then when sin brought death, you've said, no, more life in Jesus, in the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And as we come to your table this morning, may we come with grateful hearts that you took our sin upon Yourself, Jesus, and died in our stead. We love you. And we trust you in, oh, we, we feel so often like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And we make this prayer in the name of the one who died for us, Jesus. Amen.